nationalism thrives by not just saying that it wants to build up its own country and make it better and that it's proud of it, but by denigrating others. Whereas patriotism doesn't carry, for me, that connotation. And I think there's an important distinction. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to The Good Fight, a podcast that searches for the policies, ideas and strategies that can beat a four-time populist like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. Today I want to tell you something exciting in the personal department. As I've mentioned before on the podcast, my new book is just about to come out, The People vs. Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. You can go to Amazon or a reputable bookstore and order it now. But I'm also doing a book tour. So there's a good chance that you will get a chance to see me live. On March 1st, I'll be in New York City at Interface doing a book launch with Masha Gessen, which I'm really excited about. On March 5th, I'll be in Cambridge, Massachusetts at the Harvard Bookstore. On March 11th, in Washington, D.C. at Politics and Prose with E.J. Dion. On March 13th, in San Francisco, with another former guest on the Good Fight, Francis Fukuyama at the Commonwealth Club. On March 14th, in Los Angeles at Zocalo Public Square with Amr Hamzawi. On March 15th, at the Public Library in Seattle. On March 17th, at the King's English Bookstore in Salt Lake City. On March 20th, at the LBJ School in Austin, Texas. On the 22nd, back in New York City at the Brennan Center. On the 27th, at the Council of Global Affairs in Chicago. And on March 29th, at the Public Library in Toronto. In the middle of February, I will also be in a bunch of German cities, including Berlin, Hamburg, Stuttgart, Munich. So uh, head to my website, which is newly designed and really beautiful, yashamunk.com, to look up uh, details on any of those events. And as a special retreat, on April 4th, we will be having the first live Good Fight podcast in Washington, D.C. at New America. So look out for that as well. But now I'm just really, really thrilled to introduce to you the guest with whom I just had a just fascinating, wide-ranging conversation, David Miliband. David is the CEO and the president of the International Rescue Committee, and he was the British Foreign Secretary from 2007 to 2010. We talked about the problem of refugees in the world, some of the misconceptions that people have about refugees, the way that we can effectively help them not just survive and avoid the worst kind of injustices and outrages, but actually thrive. But we also talked much more broadly about the nature of identity and belonging in modern societies, about how to renew the international system and how to win the fight against populism. I hope you will enjoy the conversation as much as I did. David, in your book, you chronicle a number of major misconceptions about refugees. People tend to believe that most of them live in refugee camps, that they return home after a few years, that they tend to live in Western countries like Germany or Canada. And you're sure that all of that is wrong. Um, what implications do these misconceptions have for refugee policy? How should we rethink the challenge of refugees in the world once we understand that these facts aren't in fact true. I think that the most striking thing for me in the four years that I've been working in the humanitarian sector is this point about the duration of displacement, because that is the fundamental challenge to the operating model of the humanitarian system. The humanitarian system was developed, first of all, in the second half of the 19th century, and then after the Second World War, when refugees had rights, it was designed to keep people alive, to help them survive. 
And the premise was that refugees were displaced from their homes for a short period of time, and then they went home. Uh, and that's how you end up with refugee camps that became temporary shelters that were focused around food and, to some extent, healthcare. And survival was the order of the day for obvious reasons. The major consequence of that misconception that refugee status is a short-term one is that the way in which the humanitarian sector works doesn't serve the interests of the people who it's meant to be helping. It keeps people alive, but it, it helps them survive, but it doesn't help them to thrive. And the fact that layered on top of the duration of displacement, you've got the fact of urban displacement. So people are in a market economy. They're not given food. They're not given health care. They have to find access to those things. The fact that education, employment become much more important than they'd ever have seemed in a short-term refugee settlement. The major consequence of the misconceptions that you suggest is that there's a collective failure in the way in which the humanitarian system works. It's not delivering the kind of outcomes that any of us would think were essential because it is different if you're displaced for six years or 16 years or 26 years than if you're displaced for six weeks or six months. So presumably one of the real differences is that you have to put a lot more emphasis on education and making sure that if people live for 10, 20, 25 years as refugees and you're not thinking about how to give them a quality education, they won't have any opportunities. Yeah, um, and you can see how the humanitarian sector lags because half of the world's refugees are kids, more or less, and 2% of the world's humanitarian budget goes on education. Yeah, that's crazy. What balance should we strike? We're still not talking here about countries like the United States. We're talking more presumably about countries like Jordan and Pakistan and so on, between integrating people into their host countries and having a parallel system for them. I mean, would the ideal case be that we don't have to have a huge specific budget for education for refugees, but instead we are making grants to education ministry of those countries in order to expand? Well, I've changed my view here. I mean, I, I think that while refugee camps seem like a humanitarian thing to offer, I say in my book, too often they're funeral homes for dreams. And my view now is that the right goal is for the vast majority is going to be integration into the local economy and society. Parenthesis, there needs to be special recognition in the budgets and the economies and the support of those countries that they've got the refugee responsibility. The big challenge is a political one, because it's not only in the West that the prospect of refugees arriving is an enormous challenge. If you're in Kenya, if you're in Jordan or Pakistan, the countries that you mentioned, they've got enough trouble looking after their own populations. So there needs to be a new kind of bargain that supports refugee hosting states, countries that are bearing the burden of the humanitarian distress that exists around the world. Otherwise, they're not going to do the kind of integration that is possible. My argument to them, interesting, some of the most interesting conversations you can have are with people in refugee hosting countries because they're struggling with what in the West we'd call the push versus the pull factor. And their question is, well, if we integrate them, will these people ever go home? Right. To which the answer, I think, is twofold. One, quite a lot of them won't because they're displaced for so long. I mean, the war in Congo has been going on for 30 years, in Somalia for 30 years, that it's not going to be safe to go back. But secondly, the greatest chance of them going back is actually if their children, if they grow into educated adults, or if they're adults, they get the chance to maintain some kind of standard of living and some ability to go back to their home country to make a contribution to its renewal. There's a similar set of debates about where we should put most of our resources. So a very straightforwardly sort of utilitarian way of looking at it might be most of the refugees are in poorer countries for obvious reasons because they end up close to where the major conflicts in the world are. And instead of taking a lot of these people into Western societies where that can create political backlash and might cost a lot more money, 
we should put a lot of financial resources in helping them in those countries, in supporting the Jordanian government, in integrating refugees into their societies, but do a lot less to welcome them into our own homes. I know that you make a quite passionate case for why that point of view is wrong. Well, a part of it is wrong. Remember, my argument is, yes, the vast bulk of the resources will go into the support of the Jordans and the Lebanons and the Pakistans and the Kenyans of this world. That's where most refugees are. But I make a substantive and a symbolic argument, or an argument on substantive and symbolic grounds, for why a refugee resettlement program for hundreds of thousands, not for millions, is vital to the sustainability of the refugee system, the humanitarian system, as well as to the moral standing of the West. And that argument is first, for some people who are refugees in Jordan or in Kenya, their needs are so great, their trauma is so intense, their medical condition is so deep, their degree of loss, widows who've lost whole families, they're the most vulnerable, they need a new start in life, and they can only find that in a wholly new setting. They might be actually on the run, and they might be fearful of their lives. Last year, around 100, 120,000 people got through the refugee resettlement system out of a refugee population of 25 million. So you can see the relative balance. The US has 1% of the world's refugees and 25% of global income. So the vast bulk of the humanitarian budget goes in countries that are doing the bulk of refugee hosting. And it's worth people knowing that the top 10 refugee hosting states account for only 2.5% of global income. So these are relatively poor or lower middle income countries. My argument is that substantively, there are some people who need a new start and the West is best place to offer it. But second, symbolically, it's important to stand with the countries that are hosting the bulk of refugees. When I was in Uganda in the middle of last year, a million refugees have arrived from South Sudan. They said, look, we're not building a wall, but really, you've got to be taking some people because we've got a, a story to tell to our own population. We can say that these people are our brothers and sisters, we need to look after them. But it's much easier if we can say, but the West is taking some as well, as well as paying us to do some refugee hosting. So part of the question here, I think, is about our optimism to fix the politics of Western countries, right? I think if you have quite a pessimistic view of the rise of populism, the rise of people like Donald Trump over the last years, you might say, well, actually, perhaps we have to make certain concessions, because if we don't, then the system will get even worse, right? I mean, if saying, I come from Germany, putting a stop on how many people can come to Germany is a price you have to pay for making sure the alternative for Germany doesn't end up in government and that you can sustain, for example, higher spending on humanitarian aid and higher spending on development aid and so on, then perhaps that's a price to pay. The counterpoint to it would be that, no, actually, once you give up on your principles and once you start to make those kinds of cynical calculations, you lose your ability to win those debates because you're not standing on principle. I'm a little torn between those two positions, I have to say, because I certainly would like to stand on a principle's point, but I also see the need to, in some way, respond to popular anger, even where I don't agree with popular anger, if that's what it well, takes. Let me, let me take take that on, because I think it's, it's a legitimate set of questions, but I think it's founded on some misconceptions. And to put it up front, my basic view is, if you reduce the number of refugees who are coming, you're not actually going to get to the root of the populist backlash. And I want to explain why. And I want to explain why by using two points that might seem pedantic but are really important. The first is the distinction between a refugee and an asylum seeker. A refugee is someone who goes to their first country of, in which they land, let's say Jordan, and claim uh, refugee status there. Refugee resettlement is when those people are then transferred in an organized way, government to government, to a place in the West. Asylum is when you claim 
refugee status in a third country, having travelled without documentation, without a refugee status, and you claim asylum in a country like Germany to take that as an example. The origins of this, of course, were during the Cold War, academics would come and claim asylum having gone to a conference in uh, the West. So you can see that asylum has a particular history that's very, very important. So first, we need to maintain that distinction. And my argument would be that the better the legal routes to hope that refugee resettlement represents, the better the humanitarian conditions in countries like Jordan, the better chance you have of squeezing the people trade, the smuggling trade, which is essentially the way people get to countries like Germany. So Mm. that's the first distinction I think is worth having in mind. The second distinction that I think is even more important for the debate in the US, but is relevant in Europe as well, and that is the distinction between a refugee and an immigrant. Because in my experience, when the debate about refugees and the debates about immigration become confused, then you're on the skids when it comes to the political argument. We found that Mm. in the UK in the 1990s, and I think it was at the heart of Donald Trump's appeal in 2016, the conflation of the refugee issue, the so-called Trojan horse of Syrian refugees, with the 11 million undocumented who are mainly from Central and South America. And the distinction between a refugee and an immigrant is that a refugee is someone who has a well-founded fear of persecution, for whom it's not safe to go home. Hmm. An immigrant, classically, is someone who is seeking a better life, not fleeing for their life. And it seems to me that if you accept those two distinctions, you have to argue first that in all cases, citizens want their flows of people to be managed. And that's a central challenge that Europe hasn't lived up to well, and I think has got itself into trouble, but the US hasn't managed well in some ways either. Secondly, cracking down on refugee intake is not going to solve your asylum problem or your immigration problem. It might make them worse. And so as in All the questions that run through the book I wrote, the policy and the politics are intertwined. But unless you're clear about the different policy elements, you'll get the politics wrong. So let's talk for a moment about the asylum intake, right? Because you're right that for the language actually that Germans use about it is refugees, including German politicians. What you are mostly concerned about, there is asylum seekers, right? So it's not people who have applied outside of a country to come to Germany. It is people who have traveled without documents and so on because they were fleeing you know, terrible circumstances and have many other good options. But I think there's a reason why people conflate all of those different things that you're talking about. And that's because people feel that the numbers aren't being managed and that they have a fear of their culture changing and the nature of the home country changing. In Germany, where you had a million asylum seekers come in over the course of a year, it's understandable why people might feel that because you can do the sums relatively easily and especially once you bring family into the country and so on afterwards, you do end up with a very rapid change in the nature of the population. So I understand where that anxiety comes from and I think it requires us to do two things. It requires us, first of all, to think about the nature of a political community. How can we get people on board with a society that is multi-ethnic and that is multi-religious but that also retains traces of what the old culture was like. And then the second question is, you know, especially from the point of view of Europe, where this is more urgent than the United States, which has sort of enough oceans surrounding it to deal with a problem for it, what do you do? I mean, do you do what Angela Merkel did, which is to end up with a bunch of pretty dubious deals with Turkey and Recep Erdogan in order to have somebody else keep refugees out for you while you're pretending to have open borders? Or do you actually stick with your humanitarian commitments, even when it doesn't mean a million people a year? Well, look, I think it's very important that you do stick to humanitarian commitments, not least when they're enshrined in international law and individuals have rights to due process. But that's not the point that I want to 
make. First of all, let's get the numbers in perspective. So there are 25 million refugees in the world. There are 40 million internally displaced as a result of war or persecution. There's 250 million on the move for economic reasons. Interestingly, among the million that were admitted to Germany as asylum seekers, more or less half, even 60%, are not having their asylum claims met. They're not found to have a well-founded fear of persecution. And it's very important, first, therefore, that their claims are dealt with quickly, which is a point that Emmanuel Macron has been making. And it's secondly important, and maybe this is surprising for someone who's a leader of a humanitarian organization to say it, but I promise you I was saying it well before the Trump election. You can only sustain the refugee system, the refugee resettlement system or the asylum protection system, if those who don't meet the qualifying criteria aren't allowed to stay. And that has to be run effectively and properly. And I, I don't think it's wrong to say that. Two other points. The real issue in the German case, I think, and the European case, is that in 2015, Angela Merkel was having to play catch-up. Because in 2013 and 2014, this refugee crisis was brewing. The Pope went to Lampedusa and said, there's a globalization of indifference here. Europe was focused on the Euro crisis and it was focused on Ukraine. And by the time Angela Merkel decided in 2015 to say she would recognize all Syrian asylum seekers, whether or not they'd landed in Greece or Italy first, there were already 450,000 asylum claimants in Germany already. Hmm. So playing catch-up is always a very hard position. Secondly, because she was playing catch-up and because she took a unilateral decision, she didn't share out the responsibility across Europe. Because, of course, a million claims among 550 million citizens of the 28 countries of Europe is different than 1 million among 90 million. Right. And it's easy to say, look, I wouldn't start from here, but I actually defend what she's done and think actually that it is manageable. But you've then got to recognize that analyzing what are the challenges that have been posed, why have they arisen in the way they have? And I think the explanation I've given to you goes to the heart of some of the sense in Germany of being, quote unquote, overwhelmed. One of the things that I found really peculiar in the German response to the refugee crisis was sort of rhetorical. So as somebody who's not just the leader of a great humanitarian organization, but also obviously a former politician, I wanted to pick your mind about that. So my reading, and you might disagree with the characterization of what Angela Merkel did, was essentially twofold. On the one hand, she said, we have a humanitarian obligation to keep the border open, and we're going to do that, and we're going to take in however many come. There's no upper limit. And on the other hand, she was then often not very publicly trying to do all kinds of things to actually keep people out of the country, including eventually striking that deal with Erdogan. And so it's sort of a little bit the inverse of what you might expect a politician to do. You might expect a politician who has sort of a humanitarian commitment to actually try and keep the door open to people who really deserve it while reassuring the public that there's limits and so on. She sort of did the inverse. You know, how do you think politicians in situations like that should communicate about it? Well, you, first of all, if I was so smart at being a politician, then uh, maybe uh, I wouldn't be the head of an NGO. So all the budding politicians or actual politicians who are listening to this can take this with a large pinch of salt. My reading of the German situation, and of course you know German politics better than I, is that Mrs. Merkel was very stung by the allegation in respect of the euro crisis that she'd simply been kicking the can down the road, that she had never got to the roots of the Greek problem. And that partly explains the decision that she made. And of course, leadership has a particular meaning in Germany and a particular resonance that is challenging. Now, my take is that you've got to really try and keep your public and your private utterances aligned because the biggest danger in politics is when the two become separated. Now, 
the truth about what she did with Turkey is that she was scrambling to try and get some control of the situation. Remember, it's only last summer that the European Council and the European Parliament agreed the entry-exit system so that everyone who enters the European Union or leaves is registered. And mm. by the way, all those who are refused entry are also entered onto the uh, database. So Europe as a whole was scrambling to catch up. It's another example where lack of integration has been the enemy of effective policy in Europe and in the EU. And I think that that explains some of the difficulty or some of the, the dissonance between the public and the private. So you just mentioned integration, you meant European integration, the context of the European Union and so on. But in the book, you talk very interestingly as integration as an ideal and contradistinction to tolerance on the one side and assimilation on the other. So the idea, I suppose, is that assimilation really means we have a pre-existing cultural space. You can come in and if you manage to look as much like everybody else as possible, then we'll be happy with you. But our culture won't in any way accommodate you. It won't change in response to you. And then on the other end, tolerance sort of essentially means you live over there and we live over here. And if we are taking the same bus, then perhaps we will sort of politely nod from a distance. But that's about it, right? We will tolerate each other from a distance. And And you're arguing for a form of integration which allows people to keep part of a culture and to affect the overall culture, but also make sure that people in the end have something in common. I have a sort of personal question to you on that. So I grew up in Germany uh, with Jewish ancestors and for various reasons never quite felt very at home in Germany, in part because I was an immigrant, my parents come from Poland, in part because I was Jewish and for I'm not religious, that was sort of enough to make people quite nervous about around me, actually, uh, when I was growing up, because sort of it never really met a Jew and being Jewish. Where in Germany forth, did you grow up? I was, I was born in Munich and moved around a lot. Uh, you know, being Jewish in Germany still sort of calls forth, basically. I mean, who, who you are as a German depends on how you think about the past, and Jews are sort of a symbol for that. So it sort of basically brought the whole historical tragedy of Germany into conversation every time you mention it. So I sort of preferred not to mention it at all. This is a very long window of saying that when I went to university in England and eventually came to grad school in the United States and have lived here mostly for the last 10 years. And to me, at that time, Britain and the United States were great examples of integration. Countries which, compared to continental Europe, had done a lot better at creating similarity between people. I was really struck in England, for example, by the way in which Friends of mine who had Indian heritage just felt like they naturally belonged in the country and were seen like that. And it was just not a question. And in the United States, obviously, in a city like New York, you see the great multi-ethnic experiment working every day. Over the last couple of years, I've become a little more skeptical of myself and that optimism, in part because of Brexit and the election of Donald Trump, and in part because perhaps reconsidering the two countries in light of those political events I saw some ways in which I'd been naive all along. How do you think we're doing? Well, I think that, I mean, I have my own personal history in this because um, I was born first generation uh, British citizen. I say in my book that we felt British and foreign at the same time. My parents were foreign. Um, my dad always had a slightly foreign accent, quite hard to place exactly where it was. English was his uh, second language. And so that partly informs what I'm going to say. But I'm also informed by... Two other things. One, I refer to in the book, Roy Jenkins, the former Labour Home Secretary, coined this idea of the difference between integration and assimilation. And he was looking at France and saying, pretending there's a carbon copy of a Frenchman and that everyone has to then adhere to it doesn't make sense. Where cultures evolve. He made the point about the Welsh and the English. 
but I'm also informed by the following political insight from Ron Brownstein, who's a American political commentator. And he talks about a coalition of transformation and a coalition of restoration. And my perspective on the politics that you describe is that the coalition of transformation in both Britain and the US was less wide and less deep than we hoped, in that the great urban centers were seeing the benefits of diversity evolving in a very dynamic way. Economically, they were relatively successful. I mean, the transformation of urban life from a code word for decline to a code word for renewal in the last mm. 25 years is it's remarkable. It's remarkable. Yeah. And I do think, I'm sorry to throw all this, the blizzard of statistics, but the most striking statistic about the US election I've read is that out of the 3,000 counties in the US, 2,400 or so voted for Donald Trump. Those counties, those administrative units, accounted for only 36% of US national income. The counties that voted for Mrs. Clinton accounted for 64% of national income. The most economically dynamic, but also the most socially diverse places, in other words, the coalition of transformation, is economically strong. However, that is not the same as saying the whole country's come along with it. And the story of Brexit, as you know, is that the urban conurbations, the successful urban conurbations voted to stay, and the mm. uh, less economically successful, older, in terms of uh, demographics of the population, especially of small towns, voted to leave. And so what I would say to you is, are we willing to take a bet on the coalition of transformation or do we have to be hauled back by the coalition of restoration? So I agree with you that in the end, the coalition of transformation is likely to win. I, I think, by the way, that that's not the same question as whether populism might win, because I think there could be a populism that captures a large share of the vote of a coalition of transformation as well. I've always thought that the most successful kind of populism in the United States might play a kind of ethnic divide and conquer. If you imagine a Latino populist who victimizes rhetorically in other ways African-Americans, or for that matter, an African-American populist who victimizes Latinos, you could actually imagine quite weird coalitions. So I agree with you that actually in the end, the coalition of transformation is going to win because at least in the United States, there is a deep sense in which it is a multi-ethnic society in which it's obvious to people that an American can be white or black and can be Christian or Jewish or Muslim in a way that hasn't always sunk in in the continent of Europe yet, for hopefully it will. But I've also become a little bit more skeptical about the success of a multi-ethnic society in the thriving cities. So when I look at, say, Harvard University, where I went to grad school and still teach a little, when I look at New York City, when I look at institutions like New America, which co-produces a podcast, I am struck by the degree of tension and, to some degree, self-segregation that can happen there. I mean, right, you walk into the freshman dining hall at Harvard, and most times there is a table which is all black, and then there's a lot of tables that are all white. You see that at office Christmas parties, even in places like New York City. And I don't know what that means. I mean, perhaps that's fine, right? Perhaps no, it that means just that the means integration that, hasn't been as successful as we'd like it to be. Right. It looks like actually even in those spaces, there is more tolerance and less integration than we would like to think. I, I'm sure that's true. Mark Lilla would say it's especially true in the groves of academe and other institutions of the elite. By the way, I'm not saying that there is an ineluctable victory for the forces of transformation. You all may be more confident than I am about how the politics plays out because it's not clear to me that the, the scars of inequality and rupture of identity that are so prevalent in American debate, especially, but also in British and continental debate, especially in the uh, fragmented 
political systems of continental Europe, it's not clear to me at all that the coalition of transformation wins, but that's not necessarily where you're taking the conversation. I would take the point that integration is very much work in progress, and we should take that on the chin. And that's especially so at a time in an age of extremes, and this is the age of extremes. And the age of extremes in economics has been well documented. The age of extremes in politics, I don't want to sound like an economic determinist, but there's an element that is mirroring what's going on in the economy. So let's invert this conversation, because one of the things that I've really been starting to think about is how do you actually fight for integration? I agree with you very much that that has to be the ideal, but I want to live in a society that neither makes impossible demands of immigrants and says we have one unified culture and you have to start copying us or you don't belong. That seems horrific to me. I also don't want to live in a society where there's just lots of groups living next to each other and you have a sort of purity within each of those cultures and every culture might be fairly accommodated, but there's no sense of we that goes beyond that. So we have to fight for a feeling of belonging. It's not just that a country like the United States or any truly liberal democracy should welcome people beyond you know, irrespective of race or creed, it's that we want people to be able to see what they have in common across racial and ethnic and gender and so on lines. But how do we fight for that? And in particular, what role should nationalism or patriotism play in that? My instinct very much from my biography and my upbringing is to try and leave those things behind, right? To say that I've seen some of the destructive force that nationalism has played in the 20th century. I myself have grown up in a country where I only felt to some degree that I belonged, isn't the future precisely in post-national entities and so on and shouldn't we leave nationalism behind? I've started to doubt that in the last years because I've seen the ways in which nationalism retains its huge political force and if you leave it be, if you don't actually colonize it, if you don't actually use it productively, then it'll be subverted into the worst kind of political force as I think the White House and other people have done. So how do you fight for integration and what role do you think a sort of inclusive sense of nationalism or patriotism might play in that? Well, in America, I've learned that when people say, that's a great question, they mean that they don't know the answer. And so <laughs> that is a great question. And I would just say one thing about integration and one thing about nationalism. In respect of integration, surely the obvious point, I think it was Jonathan Sachs who first said this, the house that you build together is a house that you're likely to inhabit better together. And so that's what makes the work of universities, think tanks, workplaces, sports clubs, community centers, those community building places uh, become especially important. And the houses that we build together are the houses that we occupy together in a effective way. And that's why I think the battles for integrated schooling, integrated housing, integrated, you mentioned universities and think tanks, are important. The second thing is that I do think that patriotism is different from nationalism. And without wishing to stereotype, it feels to me that nationalism thrives by not just saying that it wants to build up its own country and make it better and that it's proud of it, but by denigrating others. Whereas patriotism doesn't carry, for me, that connotation. And I think there's an important distinction. So I agree with the distinction. I've used it before. I mean, um, but I guess I wonder whether that's too easy to distinguish between them, because I think it captures a nice conceptual distinction in the kind of collective identity that I feel comfortable with and in the kind that doesn't. But the question well, I don't think it gets is, you out of jail, but, uh, so, so, but it just my starting point would be, I say very easily, I'm proud to be British. I have absolutely no inhibition about saying that. I'm incredibly proud of some things about Britain, although I'm very clear about some of the problems that it's got. So I think that 
embracing that notion that our community, our national community is one that we want to build up so that it represents the best of us. I mean, look, if you're the foreign minister, Madeleine Albright once said to me, look, the great thing about being foreign minister is that you can represent the best of your country. Hmm. And I think that's a great notion. And I really embrace that very strongly. And I think from a left or progressive perspective, it's really important to hold on to that. I think there's also an international element to this. And we haven't, it's interesting, we haven't talked about it much, but part of the argument of my book is that the refugee crisis is a harbinger for the fate of globalization more generally. And I think to this point, one way in which patriotism and nationalism, the distinction between the two that I've tried to set out, or maybe you tried to set out, comes through is how it thinks about foreign countries. And it seems to me that at the heart of the current discontent is the fundamental issue that very few national problems can be solved without international action, that international action is very hard to organize, that it carries with it enormous senses of unfair play and unfair burdens being borne, but that the answer to that sense of unfair burdens is not to turn to nationalism. And it seems to me fixing the multilateral system is absolutely key to tackling some of that nagging grievance that is fueling what I call grievance politics in so many places. One of the main ways in which people have cashed out the distinction between Donald Trump and earlier foreign policy in the United States is that Donald Trump supposedly you know, puts America first, as, as his noxious slogan indicates, and is much more uncompromising and fighting for America's interests. I think that's the wrong way of thinking about it. I think actually the crucial distinction between Donald Trump and other presidents is in what they consider to be the nature of America's interest, where you can have, you know, healthily advocate for your nation's interests, as I'm sure you did when you were foreign secretary in Britain, but while understanding that the nature of the interest of Great Britain or the United States consists in cooperating with your partners and finding ways of getting along. No, that with is a great point. The, the, the flinching at the notion of America, that why America First was such a clever slogan, notwithstanding its, I think, fascist heritage in the 1930s, is that it made progressives flinch, whereas in fact they should have puffed out their chest and said, yeah, too damn right, America first, but you're going to leave America second or third or fourth or fifth. Yep. And it is striking that in the modern world, China first means international engagement, a bigger role for China in the world. America first means a smaller role for America. And that's what needs to be contested. So you're right to call me out on the fact that we haven't yet much talked about the international system in defense on the West and so on. I, I, would, never on dare to, I would never dare to call you oh, out. Oh, you did, uh, you did. Uh, Dr. Professor. Um, <laughs> so, for example, in the book, you say that the opposition to help for refugees is symptomatic of a wider crisis, from trade to security to climate. So in what ways do you think that our sort of wider political system has failed to deliver for people in such a way that they're angry about those things and then is also bleeding into opposition to help refugees? Well, just to state the obvious, the international commons is mismanaged or undermanaged in a fundamental way. And there has been a failure to deliver the benefits of global integration where it's existed. And that has corroded the case for global integration where it doesn't exist global political integration, global political cooperation. And it seems to me fundamental to the fate of the West, as well as to the fate of the world in general, that we engage and try to win this argument that the solution to the discontents of globalization does not come from deglobalization. It seems to me that Emmanuel Macron has done the most to make this argument very, very powerfully. His attacks on the failings of the European Union are hmm. blistering. I mean, if you read them, they could almost come from the ultimate Eurosceptic. Yeah, yeah. But then he flips on the, on the head of a pin and says that because of all these weaknesses, we've got to make a great leap forward. 
And it seems to me that it's the failure to reform the global system that has corroded its legitimacy and its effectiveness, not a misconception about the need for greater global cooperation, coordination, and integration. You talked about how America first was politically an astute slogan precisely because it put people in the position of saying, no, we don't want America to go first, which is not a great position to be in. I mean, I think in a similar way, the Brexit slogan, taking back control, is brilliant because it expresses a sort of double ambition that people really have. I mean, it also had connotations of, frankly, xenophobia and anti-immigrant demagoguery, but it also expressed two quite legitimate hopes, one of which being that people want to feel that they have control of their own lives, that the state is helping them make sure that they know what's going to happen to them and that they can control their own fate. And secondly, that they want the nation to be able to stand tall in the age of globalization and be able, for example, to tax multinational corporations fairly and so on and so forth. How can we embrace globalization and embrace the international system and embrace global trade while giving people the feeling that they have control? Your description is, is exactly right. I'm afraid 10 years ago, before I became foreign minister, I spent quite a lot of time trying to find a way of articulating essentially the take-back control argument, but from a progressive mm. Perspective. I used to talk about how the 1940s were the era of I need, the 1980s were the era of I want, a sort of consumerist edge, and the 2000s, I argued, needed to be the area of I and we can. And essentially, that was the control argument. I think there's somebody else in the 2000s who made the we can argument. Well, they were, he made it rather better than I did. <laughs> yes, that's true. He had the yes. I forgot. I, if, I, if, I'd if I'd added the yes, maybe history would have been different. But I think that in the 1990s, Tony Giddens, the sociologist, talked about mm. a runaway world. Yeah, and yeah. He spoke to this notion of loss of control. And he said, look, it's a fundamental aspect of what it means to be on the left and to be a progressive is that people should be able to narrate their own biography. And I think that notion of an empowering progressive politics is incredibly important. One aspect of that to me is how we reform the state and yep. the way it works, not just to make sure that public services are empowering. I was interested in using cash payments as a basis for empowering people in public services, but it's also for the way in which the state acts as a bulwark against the abuse of power by the private sector, which remains a major task. Now, that, that's half of the equation. The other half of the equation is how to show that international cooperation actually gives back control rather than loses it. And I'm afraid it's a political failing that we we failed in the UK, for example, to make the argument that sitting at the table among 28 writing European regulation gives you far more control than sitting outside with the alleged threat that you could write your own regulation, whereas in fact, in truth, outside, mm. you're going to be a cork on the bobbing sea, which is the great fear of where Britain will be in, in Brexit. So it seems to me that the control argument has to be the sovereignty argument, if you want to give it a more edge, has to be taken on that actually the degree of freedom that we're going to have, if you take the Brexit case, from withdrawing internationally is actually going to be less, not more. And the degree of freedom in the US, they've exercised the freedom to pull out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. But in the process, they're going to narrow their options, not expand them. You know, I think there's two arguments that progressives or anti-populists need to win in order to move populations along with them on this. And so the first is precisely sort of on the merits of a case, that it's better to be part of the international system and help write the rules than it is to sort it out and so on. But I think the second is that you need to convince them to actually trust the government. Because if they feel like, okay, so, you know, the prime minister or minister or president is going to go and sit on this summit or on this council, 
But in the end, they're not really trying to deliver for me. In the end, they don't actually care for people like me. Then they might buy the theoretical argument, but it's better for the country to be part of those negotiations if people were actually negotiating in their interests, but still mistrusted enough. They say, I'd rather have power as close to me as possible because I don't believe that those politicians are going to go and fight for me in any case. Now, I'm not actually very cynical about this. I think that by and large, with some exceptions that I can think of currently in the United States, politicians do do their best to serve the interests of the people they represent and try really hard to make the world a somewhat better place. But we have seen a lot of frustrations and disappointments, and one of them obviously in the United States is the fact that for 30 years, the living standards of average people haven't gone up very much. So has that boat sailed? Or how do we actually win back enough trust in the government? So if we don't just say, yes, theoretically, those things could be good, but if I allow you to go off and represent me there, you will actually fight for my interests, and I'm willing to trust you. Well, I think that the arguments are very rarely won theoretically. They're only won practically. There's hardly such a thing as winning theoretically. I was trying to... Uh, I mean, it's almost like, say, well, people are with you with their, with their heart, but they're, they're not with you with their head, but people <laughs> t- tend to vote with their heads. Although I suppose you could counter-argue. I mean, to argue against myself, you could say people vote with their guts, but I don't think you can win theoretically. You've got to win practically. And there must be two elements to it, and you hinted at it in your question. One is, what are you in it for? And that's fundamental. But the second element is whether or not your answers are strong enough to counter the anger. And the danger is that the answers are too piecemeal because they're fighting yesterday's war. I mean, I think that's what Tony used to talk about when he said that we're at our best when we're at our boldest. The great danger of politics is not that it gets unmoored by being too far ahead of people. Mm. The danger is it gets unmoored by being too far behind where they are. And it seems to me that the requirement to what I would sort of call radicalize our economic offer to speak to the 30 years of stagnation that you've referred to is absolutely essential. You and I were at a conference together in September, and I pointed out there, I mean, if you'd said 10 years ago that you'd have 0% interest rates effectively, that you have quantitative easing, people would have thought you'd taken leave of your senses. But actually, that's become common sense. Hmm. And I think that it's not just a macroeconomic question. We've got to have that level of leapfrog thinking at the microeconomic level because, I mean, to take something very specific, you can say to a 45-year-old former steel worker, we've got this great training program, blah, 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 and theoretically he or his children might be better off. You've got to make it very, very persuasive for it to have any kind of purchase on the fact that yeah. they're looking at 20 more working years, 40 more life years, and just shaking their head at you and saying, look, I don't see where in this community I'm going to turn things around. And I think there's every time that people are sort of like, well, you know, when, when people use the, when truck drivers lose a job, we're just going to teach them coding. And it's sort of, it's well, I just, heard you, you had a good discussion with Martin Sanbu about this on this podcast. Yes, I yeah. And I think that you've got to triple up the degree of the offer because all these micro schemes that say, look, We'll give you a unemployed uh, drug driver. We'll 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 pay half the costs of a training course. That blah, 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 blah. I mean, that's not going to do it. You've got to load it on in a big way if you're to fulfil or to even begin the the emotional and political, never mind policy bargain. I agree that you need to really convince people that there is a better future ahead. That you have a chance. That perhaps you have to make a contribution. Perhaps you do have to end up going to that training course and taking it seriously. But it's not just pie in the sky. We will actually partner with you to make sure that your future is better. What are the main ways in which you think the center-left 
should be pushing that? Where are the areas where we can make a real offer for the future that people might believe and that we're capable of turning into reality if we gain enough? But in a way, I think you've answered that in other fora and in other uh, podcasts. But if you can't speak to living standards, you're not at the first base. If you can't speak to the social wage, in other words, the housing and the community in which people live in, you're not going to be able to uh, make a run for it. If you can't uh, give a real hope that uh, people's children are going to be ready for the world of tomorrow and that the elderly are going to be thanked for the world that they've bequeathed to us, you're not in the game. It's a very broad question that you ask, but I think you have to ally the ambition in respect to people controlling their own lives with the commitment to protect people from risks that are beyond their control. It seems to me those are the two sides of the coin. And it's interesting that Macron does speak towards this protection without being protectionist. Right, right. And I've played in the past with on the, with control and, on the other hand, protection. The third element of this must be a sense of belonging, which speaks to those notions of identity. And it seems to me that progressive politics is successful when it speaks to giving people more control, more agency, giving people more protection, but also fulfilling a sense of identity and belonging that gives a sense of safety and security because people only take risks when they're safe and secure. That's a rather broad way of framing a response because I'm not sure if you wanted me to get into um, sort of the details of policy because that's not that's not really where I'm uh, I'm at at the moment. No, I, I think that's great. Sort of then to bring it back to refugees, the question of what is the really bold vision there? I mean, obviously, in a way, it's odd to have a bold vision for the future of refugees because you know, the boldest vision would be that the world changes in such a way that there aren't any refugees. Well, the b- bold vision but, would be to take on the crisis of diplomacy that means wars are burning for longer and longer. But we're trying to live in the land of the, uh, in the real world. Look, there have to be two elements to it, as far as I'm concerned. And the first element is what happens in countries that are hosting refugees, where the humanitarian aid system needs to be flipped 180 degrees from being simply about survival to being about contribution and the ability to thrive, not just survive. And that needs a big new bargain for the management of this global public good. Hosting refugees is a global public good. And if we'd done it better, if we'd enabled the Lebanese and the Jordanians to do it better, then there wouldn't have been a European refugee crisis at all, in my argument. But, you know, to take Jordan as an example, it's a country that's on an IMF program that's three-yearly. It's on a drip feed of aid grants from, I mean, the Saudis cut off the aid to Jordan two years ago from the West and others. It's got a debt to GDP ratio of 94%. You need a big new offer. If you're going to allow the government of Jordan to say to its own people, these Syrians are staying. So that's part of it. And then I would argue that if we duck the argument about the refugees who need to come here, then we're shortchanging ourselves and shortchanging the place of liberal, democratic, pluralist societies in the modern world. Because if your podcast is about anything, as I understand it, and I'll learn more when I read your book, but if your argument is about anything, it's that Populism is an assault on pluralism. And the countries that have stood up for pluralism, that have stood up for checks on unaccountable power, that have stood up for the human rights of diverse peoples, it is Western countries. And it is democratic countries. And that is needed more than ever. I want to end on a personal note. So one of the most touching moments in the book to me was when you describe both how your grandmother, I believe, and your aunt survived World War II being hidden by a a Belgian farmer. And you're going to visit him as a teenager and ask him with a little bit of trepidation, the sort of, you know, you felt like it was an overly naive question of why do you do it? Why at great personal risk do you take in my relatives and rescue them? And he said, on doigt, you have to. I sort of wondered for a moment 
whether our culture is conducive to Andhra. I certainly grew up without many senses of obligation. I mean, I think I had aspirations to make the world a better place, but that sort of felt more like self-expression than anything else, right? It felt more like, I want to go and make a difference in the world, make it a slightly better place. And obviously that is about the fate of other people, but it's not sort of a sense that you have this sort of somewhat old-fashioned Kantian sort of moral imperative. You've just got to, right? Do you think our culture is conducive to people having not just tolerance for people, but acting on it because they feel like they have to? Well, I think that the extraordinary thing is that there are elements of the culture that are about me, that are about instant consumption, instant gratification, that are sort of narcissistic. can't think who I might imagine was a representative of that. Um, <laughs> so there are elements of contemporary culture that are narcissistic. And interestingly enough, which the autocrats of the world, like Vladimir Putin, attack as being the heart of the Western disease, that mm. it's individualistic. And by its obsession with the individual, it's become a narcissistic, hedonistic it's turned in on itself. And there are elements of contemporary culture that have that. But every day, you see extraordinary acts of bravery, commitment, giving. The, the we is not just a theory, it's a practice. And you see that in communities around the country, uh, around the countries that we've been speaking about today. And so I would say it's contested. None of us are saints, but it's not true that everyone's a villain. And there isn't the burning bridge in our own societies, thank God, at the moment, of the Nazis patrolling the area south of Brussels looking for villages that are hiding Jews. And that which forced the duty to strangers in real life and which confronted the people who, who sheltered my grandmother and my aunt. And so I suppose in that sense, we're not faced with that existential question in the same way. But I would argue that my experience of seeing the way, for example, the refugee issue has been handled in the US, it, people often say to me, how does it feel to lead an organization helping refugees at a time of backlash against refugees? And I always say, look, yes, there's backlash, but for every person who's fearful of a refugee, there's someone in America who is going out of their house, knocking on the door next door and saying, you've just arrived, how can I help? And in Texas, to take that as an example, where... The governor said he didn't want any Syrian refugees. The IRC is resettling in Houston and Dallas and successfully resettling Syrians. And, uh, and that sense of duty to strangers has come out. And so I think it's contested terrain. And that's why it's political as well as policy in a way that it probably wasn't 15 or 20 years ago. David, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends all about it. Share it on Facebook or Twitter. Buy a fortune cookie company and make sure that you advertise the good fight in every Chinese meal in America. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.